Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on Dan's Talks is Brian Polite, who is the chairman of the Shinnecock Nation Council. Uh, I think there are, uh, how many people on the council? Three? There's seven. Seven. It got expanded. Yeah. When I first came here, which was in the 50s, there was a char- tribal chief, all men attended, and everything was closed up. You couldn't talk to anybody there about anything. Yeah. And they had those big signs. I don't know if they're still there. Were they here there when you first got here? What, the new trespassing signs? <laughs> what signs? That's what they said. Yeah, but, I mean, those have been out, out for quite some time, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's come quite a long way. Uh, and uh, at this point, um, uh, you're the chairman. And please tell me a little bit about yourself and how you... Uh, how you, where you grew up and how you, how old you were when you came? Sure. So actually, surprisingly, I was born in Huntsville, Alabama on a military base. My uh, father uh, was in the military, um, came up back to home to New York uh, when I was five years old. My mom's home, you know, home state, went to Riverhead schooling until seventh grade, came to Southampton in eighth grade, graduated Southampton High School, uh, did a two semesters in uh, King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And then I transferred to John Jay College uh, in Manhattan, where I got a bachelor's in criminal justice. I uh, was a police officer for two years. was trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Academy in Artesia, New Mexico. Then did a year of law school, came home, helped my mom um, with her Raindrops Quick Stop store, started a commercial greenhouse, uh, took about uh, a a course in ornamental horticulture, um, and then got involved in tribal politics in public service for the nation. And that's basically my story. <laughs> in a very summarized two minute uh, way. Yeah, uh, what, what store was, there was a string of stores on the, on the highway there on 27A, which was your mom's, is, is it still open? Yeah, it's raindrops. It's raindrops. Quick stop, and then since then we have um, opened the cafe. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we usually don't open up that much. We do do events. Um, so we just recently had the Democratic Party at a breakfast meet and greet um, prior to the elections in November. But we're hoping to get back to some kind of normalcy with opening up the cafe more often. I had uh, read that um, the. Uh reservation is actually in two parts, one of one of which is about 100 acres, and I guess it's in the Shinnecock side of Hampton Bay. I didn't know about that. Huh? Our territory basically is in, well, we consider a lot of Southampton our territory, our Aboriginal territory, but um, currently our territory is um, about 900 plus, give or take, acres. Um, right here, we call it the Neck, which is a peninsula 
um, that sticks out into Shinnecock Bay. That's where our, where we have most of, if not all of our residents reside. Um, there's about a thousand, uh, thousand person population up here. 720 of those are uh, enrolled tribal members. The rest are tribal spouses, adopted children, stepchildren. Um, and then we have the 100 acres over on Peconic, which we call our Westwoods property, which has always been um, somewhat of a spiritual place for us, also where we used to collect wood back, um, you know, prior to the colonial days and during the colonial days, actually. And that is on both the north side of Sunrise Highway and the south side. Actually, Sunrise Highway actually goes through our territory. And that's, you know, been a bone of contention for quite some time. Yeah, it was a right of way that uh, you wound up with. A legal right of way, yes. And a legal right of way was taken by the state in 1959, illegally. What plans are underway and what are in the planning stages that the tribe is involved in at this point? Yeah, so we have a multitude uh, of projects that we're currently engaged in. Obviously, the council, although we're the government body, we do delegate a lot of these economic projects, even though we're intimately involved, to our SSH board as well as uh, project managers. So currently, we have our gas station project that we've been working on now, 15,000 square foot plaza facility on Sunrise Highway on the north side. We've been working with local officials to bring that to fruition. We're pretty close to getting our financing together for that. That's the first project that we're actually going to self-finance as a tribe, uh, as opposed to going out and getting business partners. So we're really excited about that. Uh, We have medical cannabis dispensary, which right now all the infrastructure work is going um, forward with improving our roads leading down to the cultivation facility, as well as getting water um, and electricity. And uh, the cultivation, I mean, the dispensary should also be up in, uh, construction should start on that relatively shortly. A lot of these projects that we thought were going to get uh, break ground sooner, obviously COVID has played a big part in that, not only on the financing aspects, but also on the supply chain. And then we have the gaming project. Obviously, a lot of people... Um, we're talking about the gaming project over the summer and in the spring. Currently, we're awaiting our uh, environmental impact study from the National Indian Gaming Commission. Let's move forward with that. But we've done a lot of work on size and scope and some of the due diligence that we said that we were committed to doing as far as traffic studies and the impact that it would have on tribal membership. How did um, that, the last I saw pictures of it was it was on the main campus of the tribe. Correct, yeah. And so we've been trying our best over the last 21 years is to get a, a more suitable place uh, for gaming. Unfortunately, the powers that be, and this is a prior administration, I don't really want to judge this administration until we have time to actually sit down and talk with them, but the prior administration under the Cuomo administration was very uh, dismissive of the Shinnecocks over the years. So it kind of forced us to go where we you know, know that we can absolutely go. And so that's why we moved forward with the class two project on uh, the neck here in Southampton. What is a class two uh, project? What is a class two gaming? So there's a difference between class two Indian gaming and class three. One of the biggest differences is you need a compact for a class three and that's more Las Vegas style casinos with uh, poker tables and things of that nature where you can actually play against the house instead of playing against each other. And class two is more like VLTs and you can't play against the house, you have to play against each other. So then you also have some table games that you can do on class two, but it's a 
it's significantly smaller operation than a class three. What uh, what kinds of things can't you do on a class two? You can't you can't play against the house. You have to play against. So, so if you have a card game, you can't play against the house. Uh, you'd have to play against other players. The betting it, it, it's very complicated and complex. The way the, the distinctions between class two and class three uh, Indian gaming. The way I understood it was uh, class two has random wins rather than class three where somehow you bet against smart people and something like that. No, well, it's, it's it, again, it's a mix of things. It's not just one thing makes it class two. I think the biggest thing is that uh, with class three, you have a compact with the state and you have to get into a compact with the state and there has to be some kind of revenue sharing uh, formula calculated. With class two, all of the revenue stays with the tribe. What is the, 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 I saw a plan for the facility. How many square feet would it be and how much parking would there be? Yeah. Where would it enter? You enter it on Hill Street. Not Hill Street. It's still Montauk Highway before it gets to Hill Street. Uh, right there uh, next to where our museum currently is. And yeah. originally we had a 76,000 square foot facility with about 100 table games. I mean, 1,000 VLTs and 100 table games. We have obviously said over the course of this entire endeavor that as we get further along in our due diligence and we get more readout from our environmental impact study uh, from the National Gaming Commission, that we would readjust depending on uh, you know the findings of those studies. And we're still in that process right now. Um, we're hopeful that the original design that we have will kind of uh, bear out and it will be deemed to be both environmentally safe as well as not having a big impact on the quality of life of our tribal membership. Yeah, I had read from your bio that you did a lot of traveling after uh, graduation. I wondered where, where you went on to, to uh, that you went to enjoy yourself and, and learn. Yeah, so I kind of went all over the place. One of the biggest trips that I went on was when I went to uh, Cairo and to Alexandria in Egypt, uh, saw the Great Pyramids, got to see the lighthouse of Alexandria, which was, I uh, got a huge fascination with Alexander the Great and his final burying place, burial place. So that was great. And it was actually like four months before the Arab Spring. So I was actually, uh, one of my friends was studying over there at the American University. And uh, it was actually very interesting because the environment amongst the students, you can tell was at a boiling point. There was a lot of activity in some of the shisha lounges, which is hookah lounges are very big out there. Um, there was a lot of conversation about, you know, uh, democratic principles, um, kind of the totalitarian regime under Mubarak. So that was that was eye opening. It was really cool to ride a camel through the desert. Some of my other travels that was really uh, fun is when I went over to Italy, visited Rome, Venice, uh, Milan. Really cool, really cool stuff. Really old uh, country stuff like the Colosseum, uh, the Sistine Chapel. All that stuff was really cool. And then other other trips I've been to, you know, South America, and that was more like vacation resort stuff. And then I went to Amsterdam, I visited The Hague, and went to uh, Zurich, not Zurich, Zermut, not Zermut, what is it called? I forgot the name of the city, but it's like right outside of Amsterdam. Um, it was pretty cool. Zurich, yeah, Zurich. No, it wasn't Zurich. Zurich is in, in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I forgot 
in the city. But I also, yeah, so that's that's basically a lot of my travels around the world. And then obviously I've been to several mountains, um, some big, big, big snowboarder. So is uh, Alexandria was a big city that's now mostly underwater. Is that the case? No, Alexandria, I mean, there's a lot of Carolina uh, uh, erosion in Alexandria, but it's very much not underwater. <laughs> it's a pretty bustling, uh, you know, port city in the Mediterranean. But uh, the uh, the old stuff, I think, is some of it's underwater. Yeah, no, some of it is definitely underwater, but it's uh, it's it's a pretty thriving city, very bustling. You mentioned something about the dispensary. Um, what facilities are now up and running uh, at uh, at the Shinnecock uh, Reservation? Uh, but back in the day before uh, recognition, the tribe was recognized. Uh, by the federal government about, uh, what, 15 years ago now, 20 years ago. But, and there wasn't much there. I mean, as far as uh, there, there, there was plans at that time to uh, have a nursery school, things like that, health clinic. Is there anything yet from the, that period of time that's still running? Yeah, so when we got fairly recognized, when we looked at big things about federal recognition was uh, access to federal grants that we weren't having accessibility to before. Um, things that helped us enhance our health department. Just recently, I mean, we wouldn't have been eligible for any of the benefits that came out of the American Rescue Plan or the CARES Act that came prior to that. You have to be a fully recognized tribe. And I mean, we've gotten over $10 million now in federal aid from the COVID that's allowed us to greatly expand services um, the Shinnecock members, fix people's homes. We're in the process of improving our roads. Uh, so it's been invaluable having that designation as a federally recognized tribe. Was there a, a, a medical facility on the tribal grounds? Yeah, we are, we're currently um, engaged in a contract with Southampton Stony Brook Hospital. We run a health clinic here, as well as we provide Indian health services to the extent that we can under the federal program. Uh, we are looking to expand our services and expand our building. We've also, you know, uh, been in conversations um, about the new uh, proposed new hospital that's going over by uh, the college to see if there's any way that we can uh, get more support and more resources uh, in a hospital that's going to be like, you know, right around the corner and on our ancestral lands. Uh, is there another golf tournament coming to Shinnecock? It is 2026. I believe the Open is coming back in 2026. Yeah, that was quite a history of the Shinnecocks actually building that golf club. Absolutely. And there were Shinnecocks that, you know, it's a very complicated history. There is a lot of pride from generations of people who worked at the, at the, uh, the golf course, especially Mr. Peter Smith, who was, you know, one of the first Native American superintendents of in the golf world. And there's been a lot of generations of Shinnecocks who were, you know, raised at the golf course, basically. But then you also have negative side where you have a lot of the golf course was built on our ancestors bones. And there's actually uh, testimonials or more like jokes. And I don't think they're funny, but from town records that show people were saying, yeah, don't hit this the sand trap because you might hit a Shinnecock bone or something like that. So I will say this though, the golf course under the leader, their new leadership has reached out to us multiple times. We have been in conversation. We're trying to mend some of those old wounds 
And I really do give them credit for reaching out and trying to, to incorporate Shinnecock culture more in what they're doing over there at the golf course, especially when it relates to the upcoming 2026 uh, U.S. Open. Is the Shinnecock's uh, connection to those who have passed on seen in a different light than the rest of the uh, in the United States perceives it where um, people die and they're buried and they're in specific places and you visit them, go to graves and so forth. Yeah, and I think that it's not just obviously the United States is a giant melting pot filled with so many different cultures and each culture definitely has a different way sometimes and sometimes it's the same how you remember your ancestors and, and the dead. So I would say that we're pretty much in line with a lot of the other cultures that respect very highly our ancestors and their spirits and their remains. And that's why one of the reasons why we're pushing so hard and continue to push about uh, the hills and Shinnecock Hills and the importance of letting our ancestors rest in peace and not have a mansion built on top of them. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> are, are there any plans in the works for upcoming things that you haven't uh, decided upon yet? No, I mean, we have a full plate. Obviously, this COVID thing is, is rearing its ugly head again, and it's really having a huge impact on the nation. Just like in Suffolk County, we're, we're finding test cases on the rise, unfortunately. So our, you know, one of our main concerns right now is just keeping everybody safe, trying to mitigate the spread, and also trying to keep a sense of community when we have to go back to these kind of you know, social distancing, and we've had to shut down our, our, our office. I'm here now, but I'm here alone. Um, so we've been doing it remotely. So really, we're just excited about, you know, not only our economic projects, but again, that, that money that we got from the ARP is really going to help us with our infrastructure needs on the nation. Things that we took years under economic development to do. What's the ARP? Uh, American Rescue Plan under the Biden administration that actually gave $30 billion uh, $20 billion in direct aid and another $10 billion in, uh, in grants and programs uh, for Indian country. It's the biggest single uh, investment in Indian country that any administration has ever done in the history of the United States. So it has helped us provide direct support for tribal members who have economics from COVID. It has helped us supply indirect support through utilities assistance, child tax, food cards, roads, improvements to our community, uh, center infrastructure. I mean, the gambit is wide and, you know, we're very appreciative that the Biden administration, everybody in Congress kind of looked out and, and saw this in the light of, hey, you know, these funds, yes, are there to help get you through COVID, but with indigenous communities in general, we are more susceptible at a higher rate than these pandemics because of some of our infrastructure needs. So the money was also geared towards building up your infrastructure so that the next pandemic that comes around, you wouldn't be as susceptible as we were. And you know that's going a long way, not just for our tribe, but tribes across the country. I think the Montauk tribe is looking for recognition. Yeah, um, I deserve it. <laughs> they were uh, paid to leave back in the 19th century. They were offered money to leave Montauk and set up uh, tribal grounds upstate, which was a shame that that, that happened. I've, I've been reading a lot of the history of the Shinnecocks and the uh, Circassian, and it's been, uh, it's been quite a, a rise that the tribe has made in the last generation. 
uh, which is just remarkable. I think a lot of people are very uh, feel very good about the pride that the nation has come forward with, and I think that the uh, an interesting thing was the the building of the uh, monuments up on the sunrise. I think people. At first, were a lot of them were very negative about how can they do this and this and the other thing. But I think that a lot of people are just saying, "Well, that's that's their their ability. They can do that, and they and it looks nice. And uh, they're pre- very we're very happy to be having you come around to uh, join us in whatever prosperity you can." Can, can take place going forward. Absolutely, yeah. You know, the monuments were a big, big deal for especially our elders. I remember the day that the seal actually went up there 65 feet in the air overlooking our ancestral territory and there were literal tears in some of the elders' eyes to show that recognition that, you know, you guys are all now entering Shinnecock tribal territory or ancestral homelands and that we're still here. And I think that was such a powerful uh, a testament to the resiliency of the Shinnecock Indian Nation. And it might seem small to some people, but it was a giant step forward for Shinnecock. It also showed the Shinnecock people that in the face of adversity, we could pull through as long as we, you know, banded together as a nation and inserted our sovereignty. So, you know, on multiple levels, plus the financial aspect of it has been great. It's been, you know, providing a good revenue stream for programs up here on the nation. So all in all, I think the sign project was a huge success. I'm glad that community members um, from the Southampton community and the East End community were able to get past some of the hysteria um, that was tied to it, uh, you know, some of the falsehoods that were being spread around, some of the nasty things that were being said about the Shinnecock people and how we were going to destroy the Hamptons, which is laughable at best. But, you know, yeah, I mean, we've, we've been able to use it also as a public service announcements, which has been great as well. So. I'm really looking forward to building on that kind of economic uh, project success and, and moving forward with that kind of template going forward, trying to educate people on some of the misinformation that gets spread whenever we try to do something. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I'm talking to Brian Polite, who is the chairman of the Shinnecock Indian Nation. So I wanted to uh, wish you and the tribe members just the best of luck going forward and it's good to get to speak to you. Thank you so much. And uh, happy new year to you and everybody who subscribes to Dan's Papers in the East End. Happy new year. Bye. Thanks.